Radiolab is supported by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. You're listening listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. Okay. Look at that difference. (laughs) Huge difference. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let me just do the the, I'm producer Matt Kilty, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) All right, you want to just take it away? Yeah, let's just jump right in because tis the season. For one of the greatest miracles on earth, not the birth of Christ, virgin birth, pretty wild stuff, but actually the miracle of human flight. Hello, everyone. My name is David, and I'm your chief flight attendant on behalf of the Okay. The now, I should say, this is not a story. I don't have a story to tell you. <laughs> Who needs a story? Matt, throw us whatever you got. We're captive. All right. So, I wanted to start on a plane because millions of people around the world are going to be on them uh, around this time of the year. Yeah. But also because of this thing that happens to me. Every time I fly, which is like, all right, you're on the plane, you're out on the tarmac, you're waiting to take off for a while, a long while, and then the engines start to whir, and suddenly you feel this like, that jolt, like the whole plane starts shaking, you can hear the seats rattling, the plane is just going faster and faster, you're doing something like 180 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden you're just like, oh. And you feel that little rise, and you leave the earth, and you can see the ground just start to fall away, and the higher you get, you can start to see the snakings of the freeways and the highway systems and the parks and the neighborhoods, and then all of a sudden you're in the clouds. That's where we used to think that gods yeah. existed yeah. and yeah. angels. And like, we're just up there. And maybe you take a moment to kind of just take a breath, relax. Feeling a state of pleasant anticipation about the place you're going to be when you land. I actually talked to Dan Coyce, who's a writer for Slate, so, awesome. who pointed out to me that one of the incredible things about being up there with all these people is, you know, we're 200 people or so, and we're like a little civilization. Soaring through the sky which is actually kind of where everything goes wrong. Because what it means is it's just you and a bunch of people trapped inside of a relatively small 
metal tube. And any agency we have over ourselves has essentially been stripped of us. You are literally strapped into a seat, no longer in control of your physical body or your fate. It is in other people's hands. And you start to wonder, who are these other people? Like, is the person next to me a loud snorer or a drooler on my shoulder? And there was that guy across the aisle who looked, hey, hon, hey, honey. Super flirty with a flight attendant. Is that a kid behind me? They might kick the back of your seat. <laughs> Somebody sounds sick. Like, they're coughing a lot. What if our pilot's a bad pilot? We could crash and I might die. And slowly, you are confronted with the fact that this glorious miracle of human flight is really just some sort of, like, weird endurance test. Yeah, or like a test of your worth. Like, can you make it through this challenge with your humanity intact in order to earn the reward at the end, which is that you're in Palo Alto or whatever? Okay. This is Radiolab. I'm Lulu Miller. I'm Latif Nasser. And today, to ring in the holiday airline travel season, we are going to take you on a flight. A flight through these sometimes stressful. Sometimes scary. Sometimes disgusting. Sometimes pleasant. Endurance test that is flying commercial. We have got three different stories that examine three different elements of this strange little civilization in the air. And to kick it off... Yeah, it's like in all the tens of thousands of miles of space, these few inches are the most contested. Producer Matt Kilty. Okay, so Matt, maybe just rewind yeah, a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, <laughs> go back. Uh, airplane civilization. Uh, let's see, what do I... Going to bring back I'm Dan Coyce for this. So in our little civilization, I think of I think of the pilots, the flight attendants as sort of the guardians, the providers, uh, the authority figures. And then also up at the front of the plane, you have... The first-class passengers. They're in another universe. Oh, you won't believe what he said. Talking about whatever they talk about, drinking champagne and mimosas. Yes, he said bootstraps. They're probably in their pajamas. Being massaged. <laughs> and I said, no, no, Bradley. Loafer tassels, not bootstraps. <laughs> but the rest of us... We are in the endurance test. 35 rows of six. Where you're stuck in these seats, seemingly have no cushion, just fabric. And that's where you are for your flight upright lock position, except for when you finally... Hello, everyone. The captain has turned off the seat belt sign. Your first little bit of freedom on the flight. And if you want, to your left, there is that oh-so-nice little metal button, the recline button. It's such a delicious button. It is perfectly concave for your thumb to just, like, nestle, nestle right into. into. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. like a little bed for your thumb. It wants to be touched. <laughs> it's begging for you to touch it. But the thing that I have not stopped thinking about for the past month is how this little button actually contains this sort of basic moral dilemma, which is, do you push it? and push your seat back, taking up a little bit of space from the person behind you for your own comfort, knowing that that might make them less comfortable. Well, I mean, so... The and basically, the what that means for Dan every time he flies on a plane, right before the seatbelt sign goes off, he's sitting there waiting, hoping, wondering... If everyone will, just this once, prioritize the health of the community over <laughs> the comfort of the individual. And then the little ding goes off and you discover that people don't. Yeah. They don't care about the community. They don't. They're not willing to sacrifice even a tiny bit of comfort for 
the greater good. Oh, come on. That feels so extreme. Well, I think it's sure. But Is I th- Dan a tall gentleman? Oh, no, 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 no. Dan's five foot nine. Okay, that's that's my land. But no, I think Dan has a point here, which is if you choose to recline, not only are you taking up someone else's space. They then feel they have to recline. And so you are setting off a cascade <laughs> of unpleasant circumstances right down the line as every person now faces this decision about their own comfort now under duress. But you have to admit that it's much more comfortable to be reclined than it is to be upright. Is it much more comfortable? How much of a recline do you get on a... Five degrees, typically. A five degree Mm. recline. But in such a confined world, that little bit is at least something. It's like a little gulp of fresh water. It's like a little... Mm. Yeah, I agree. But it's hard to imagine that the difference in your happiness from reclining five degrees <laughs> is even close to the increase in unhappiness of the person behind you who now has your seat in their face. So Dan's solution is basically, therefore, no one should recline, mm. which feels mm. pretty extreme. Um, yeah. And actually, I was talking to my roommate about this, who loves to, she loves to recline. And she said, why not everyone just recline? And then you maximize happiness for everybody. If everybody gets to recline, but, but then bathroom seat. The but, last row. The last yeah, row doesn't yeah. have the ability to recline. But her position was you found the back row on no, your own. No, that is not true. <laughs> your own That's individual just responsibility. Justifying for, to for wait lay- that late to buy your ticket. Right. You waited, <laughs> no you waited way. too long that is to pick cruel your seat. Victim blaming. You That's guys like, build the plane to let the back seat recline, and then we could all recline. It's a great idea. Uh, but Dan would still say no. It is still a selfish move to recline because you are simply saying, I'm making this decision for everyone. You're effectively saying, what I want is what everyone should want. So let's all just recline. There, I solved it. Okay. Now I'm starting to feel like a monster. You're a recliner. You're a major recliner. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'll take my little corner of like, I'm usually anxious. And so I'm like, I got to take that extra inch and a half and like try to find a little comfort. Okay. Um, Now this is good because I do not recline. Really? No, I, I, I don't. I really, I'm an absolutist. I don't recline. You mean, you mean like never? I mean, maybe if there's no one behind me, but like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have ever reclined. Okay, Mr. Moral High Ground. Um, <laughs> maybe I'm just feeling defensive, but I do, I feel like I gotta go here. Like, I do wonder if there's a gender thing afoot here, which is like, women are used to not getting any space. So a little bit less, like I'm not affronted by anyone mm. reclining in me because I'm used to like not taking up space and like okay. moving through okay. the granted, world. Granted, granted, different people value that space a different amount, right? Yeah. But it doesn't kind of matter what that person behind you is valuing because if you choose to recline, you're making that choice for them. Okay, maybe I can just jump in quick and say, I, on occasion, do recline. But I do it as softly and gently as possible. That's what a gift you've given <laughs> that poor bastard behind you. But I feel I feel like we're having this moral argument, which I, I understand. But to me, it feels like it's more an, an argument about ownership. Because it's like, I paid for the ticket, for the seat that comes with a recline button. And therefore, like, it feels like this the space behind me belongs to me. Like, I own that space. Right, but that makes no sense. What do you mean you own the space behind you? I own the space in front of me. You have no control over the space in front of you. I know. That's what's so upsetting about it. But then it's you like, imagine you, you're sitting you right now, you're sitting in front of your computer, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And you've got a microphone in front of you and you're recording this. And what if your next door neighbor 
just fucking showed up and like put his lawnmower on your desk. It's exactly <laughs> okay. the same. Well, but it isn't because it feels slightly different. It's like, what if it feels more like if there was like some sort of movable wall with my neighbor that I had no access to control, but they paid their price for their apartment. And it's just like one of the features of their apartment. And so if for some reason they need to like, they're having a large dinner party and they need to move the wall over three feet. They're going to just going to be like, do you see in trying to invent this uh, analogy that it's insane? The very <laughs> idea. Um, here's a question. What do you do? Mm-hmm. You're on a flight. You're, uh, you're in, you're in your seat. The seat, the person in front of you has reclined. You're annoyed about it. You're simmering. Yeah. Then they get up and go to the bathroom. But oh, they leave their seat reclined. I would never. I always, <laughs> always go push their button and pop it back up. Dan, I thought you were a model citizen. I that am feels, a model citizen. I don't know. You sound like a tyrant is what you sound like. I'm just a good parent. <laughs> but as I was reporting this story, I did start to wonder, like, who actually owns that space? That's right. And that's- so I talked to these two lawyers. Michael Heller. Michael. Professor at Columbia Law School. And Jim Salzman. Jim. Professor of Environmental Law at the University of California, Santa Barbara School of the Environment and UCLA Law School. So Jim and Michael wrote a book called Mine. M-I-N-E, uh-huh. exclamation point. Mine! Yeah, so the book Mine is basically who gets what and why. And in the book, they point out what is actually kind of obvious, which is that the airlines are the ones who own the space on a plane. Like, they're the ones who actually own this recline space. And there actually is a rule the airlines have, which is you're allowed to recline. Airlines will never enforce it. And they told me that, in fact, flight attendants are trained to just de-escalate conflicts about recline seats, not actually come in and say who controls that space. And by not making it clear who controls the recline space, they get to sell that space twice on every seat, on every flight. Because the recliner thinks that they own it, and the reclined into thinks they own it. They basically pit us against each other. A new air war has broken out. Which leads to two passengers. Irresolvable conflict. Got into a brawl Sunday. There's been drinks thrown, fists thrown. Punching the back of this woman's seat after she reclined it. I mean, there have been flights that have been grounded because of fights over seat reclining. And sure, maybe you actually have more self-restraint than that and you deceive in your seat with frustration if somebody reclines into you. But the whole point is we get mad at each other. We turn against each other because we're in this confined space where we all think we own this precious little sliver of it. And it's mine, no, it's mine. Let's you experience that conflict as being between me and you rather than between being us and the airlines. Ah, so this is all the airlines' fault. They, like, encouraged this conflict to just be left in muddy waters, no clean, you know, no clean boundaries, like, Boundaries are an illusion, I guess, but we agree upon them. No clean boundaries. It's just going to be murky. It's just going to like, it's incentivizing conflict. It's incentivizing hating of your fellow human. Like, so let's just hate the airlines. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I agree with that. (laughs) And then like, and then it's fun. But the problem is that doesn't actually solve the problem though. Well, no, it does. Here's why. Because then you can do either thing. Uh-uh. And uh-uh. Okay no way. You yourself. can't wash your hands here, Lulu. Well, I might ask now. I can I can learn. I think I, w- <laughs> I think I would ask now. Well, I, I should say, I do think there actually is a solution here, which I... Okay, say it, say it, say it, say it, say it, say it. Okay. So there was this research done by two other lawyers, actually, um, like back in 2014. It was something that was published in Slate. But these two lawyers... Uh, did a survey, it was online, where they polled, I forget how many people, and 
they were trying to figure out, is there actually some sort of solution that seems viable? So the research showed that like actually just asking somebody, trying to be polite, trying to ask like, can I lean back or can you please move your seat forward is ineffective. That doesn't actually get you what you want. Ineffective. And so then they, they, they started asking, well, like how much money would it take for you to either stop reclining or for somebody to give up the space in front of them to allow somebody to recline? And this is kind of absurd. The amount of money it would take for somebody to give up the rights to the space in front of them, $39 is what the number uh, came out to be. You have to pay somebody. What? You'd have to pay somebody $39 essentially to be able to recline into their space. Like that's how strongly they felt about the space in front of them. That's the dollar that's amount that did. Feels reasonable. That weirdly feels like a reasonable to amount. To stop of money. somebody from reclining, the number was $41. You would have to pay somebody. Well, so what does that mean? To okay, me, wait, I see it. There's more pain in you're willing to pay more. There's no, more it's pain more in reclining. It's like, no, 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 it's more. Not even. We're I, not even no, the, the no, point no, that no. We're, like, <laughs> this isn't even the point I'm trying to make. The point I'm trying to make is that actually, <laughs> the most effective thing that you can do is the researchers asked, "What if somebody purchased for you a drink or a snack that's maybe like eight bucks?" Oh, that's nice. And. 78% of people said they would accept that offer and not recline their seat. Amazing. They only asked people who were going to recline. So it's limited to just people who are going to recline. So, if you so get... Latif could be Amazing. like, wait, wait. So it could go like this. Latif could go tap me on the shoulder and say, Lulu, can I buy you a drink to not recline? Yeah, exactly. And I'd be like, oh, I would love a, a little shard. And then I'd be like, Latif, can I buy you a, a drink to recline? And you'd be like, well, I don't want a fancy cocktail, but you could buy me a tomato juice and some and one of those expensive cheese plates. And then I'd be like, okay. Oh. Yeah. I can recline now. That's classy. And isn't that so sweet? It's so cute. It's all it's sweet, but it's back to capitalism. What no 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 no. It's gift giving. It's transactional. I mean, you're saying the solution to the problem of the plane selling that space twice is to buy more snacks from them and give them more money. Okay. Hello, everyone. In a few minutes, the flight attendants will be coming down the aisle to offer you complimentary hot or cold beverages, as well as a light meal for purchase. Alcoholic drinks are also available at a nominal charge. Now sit back, relax, enjoy the flight, and thank you. All right, next up, we have got a story from our producer, Simon Adler. Okay, when I say airplane food, what what comes to mind for the two of you? The blandest, unhappiest, tiny <laughs> packet of experience. And there's often a barfy quality mm. making my stomach turn. <laughs> uh, fair enough. But what if I were to tell you that it wasn't always this way? Hmm. I'm given to understand that we're ready. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that, in fact, as food writer and frequent flyer Richard Foss here tells it, not that long ago. It was wonderful. Huh. Even in economy. Yeah, for years, food was the way that airlines competed for customers. Today's menu includes a shrimp cocktail, a chocolate hot sundae. And so you saw this sort of arms race for who could be tastier and fancier. So on transatlantic flights by SAS. Scandinavian Airlines, that is. It was a Scandinavian smorgasbord carving salmon and all sorts of things. An airline called Northwest Orient, which is based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota, served Japanese food on flights all over America, 
in what essentially became a flying tiki bar. What? Yes. It was not Japanese food as any Japanese person would recognize it, but for someone in the 1950s, this was glamour. You get to the point where Alitalia Airlines of Italy. Benvenuti a bordo. They just made it an Italian restaurant that served you food all the way from one place to another. Parmesan, mm. prosciutto, Roma tomatoes, yeah. red wine out of an actual wine glass. That's flying Alitalia. I want that flight. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a pretty amazing experience. So that's how it was. Okay. If they could return to that. Yeah, it sounds pretty good. But continue. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, how airplane food became the sad, sorry thing it is today, you could argue, uh, all began with an olive. What? what? Yes. Crandall's olive. Because olives are great. Huh. I love olives. Me too. Well, they ruined it. And here's how. <laughs> okay. Back in the 1980s, American Airlines had the CEO by the name of Robert Crandall. See, the costs now exceed revenues. And that means, of course, that we are losing money. Tough guy with slick back hair and glasses. And, you know, he was trying to make the company more money. And what happened is he was on an American Airlines flight where a meal had been served. And he looked and he saw that most of the other passengers had left the olives from their salad sitting there. And that just bugged him. Sure. He was thinking, we're paying for these olives and no one's eating them. So he basically went back to his office and said, cut the olives. And then he started looking at everything else. You know. Why are we using cloth napkins when regular napkins will do? Cut costs. Who needs metal branded silverware? Be a winner. Next, stop giving people the entire can of Coca-Cola and instead pour it into a tiny right, little cup and you get right. six ounces. Before long, you got to pay for your goddamn cheese and crackers that they give you in the little box. Like, here's a damp rag. Suck on it for, and then pass it to the next guy. Right. Exactly. Pass it to the next guy. Exactly. <laughs> and then on top of this, 9-11 happens. Okay. And I don't know if you if you remember, but in the months after the attacks... Overall, the industry remains in a slump. Planes are only 62% full. Revenues down about 40%. Airlines were going bankrupt. Continental has announced unspecified cuts. American Airlines also fighting to stay out of bankruptcy. And so they sold off their flight kitchens. And these airline-owned smaller kitchens got replaced by companies like Gate Gourmet. Okay, we're now entering. The dishroom and the storeroom, I just want to explain as we walk. Companies that began churning out airplane food for tons of different airlines all at once. We know this hour we've got 13 flights going out. Next hour we've got 24 flights. I went and visited one of these places just a couple miles from the Newark airport. This massive warehouse the size of nearly six football fields. And here... We have trucks coming all day long. 24 hours a day on a scale that's almost impossible to comprehend. We use 7,000 pounds of white ice a day. Ingredients come in through the loading dock. We get pals and pals of stroopwafels, Biscoff cookies, pretzels. And are prepared in this stainless steel-covered industrial kitchen. Mashed potatoes, we need to make polentas, mushroom deluxe. As we entered the kitchen, the executive chef, Mark DeCruz, here was preparing some breakfast items. If you walk my kitchen, you see we are braising, sauteing, stewing. So how many eggs are you going to go through today? Uh, it will be 2,600 eggs. 
<laughs> eggs that will leave on little plastic trays. And uh, how many meals do you think you make a day? Uh, we make roughly like 15 to 20,000. 20,000 or so at a time. Wow. Thank you so much. You are. We're going to go back out. We're going to go to Cold Food now. And I got to say, walking away from that factory tour, I, I was left feeling that it's a minor miracle that we have food on airplanes at all. And also that, you know, at this scale, there's just no way, no matter how hard chefs like Mark DeCruz try, that this food is going to be that tasty. But then, as I kept reporting this, I learned that these chefs are actually up against another challenge, uh, one that has nothing to do with the airlines. We can do a bit closer. Hold on. Let's put that about there. And everything to do with us. Is that better? Yes, there. Now you sound nice and rich and full. So this is Charles Spence. Head of the Crossmodal Research Laboratory at Oxford University. I'm interested in the senses. And he says to understand why airplane food doesn't taste that good, we have to appreciate that taste, it, it isn't just what's happening on the tongue. Our experience of what we call the taste of food, which is really the flavour, is probably one of the, the most multisensory experiences that we have because it really does engage all of the senses. The coating you get on the inside of your mouth, the melting sensations. You know, that's all touch. The meaty, creamy, burnt, my wife's cooking <laughs> kind of flavours. <laughs> is actually your sense of smell. And um, crispy, crackly, crunchy, those sort of sounds are really important to our enjoyment of food. And in an airplane at 30,000 feet, he says, all of these different senses, they're under assault. Take smell, for example. In an airplane, it's super, super dry. Equivalent to being in the desert. And what that means is your nose is going to be not as moist. And so the little food molecules floating in the air, the ones that you're meant to smell, they're going to have a harder time sticking to your nose. Wait, ah. for smell to work well, for, it needs to be a little wet, like humid? Yep, yep. And therefore you're going to miss all that meaty, creamy, burnt goodness. However, Charles says there is another stranger culprit at play here. Beyond smell... Um, it's really the engine noise that plays a really important role in suppressing our ability to taste. Turns out that the 80 or so decibels of white noise that are pounding your ears from the jet's engines, they reduce your ability to taste salt, reduce your ability to taste sweet, and increase your ability to detect and enjoy umami uh, increases your what? ability increases yes so that you need 20 to 30 percent more salt and sugar and significantly less msg or umami seasoning to get the same taste experience as somebody down on the ground eating the same food what yeah Oh, we, we know. We know now that this that this is really the thing. So, we in 2014 we published a paper saying, you know, why there's something about that white noise that messes with us, and they've documented this in people both up in an airplane, and then also with people down on the ground using just like headphones. Yeah, just playing them 80 to 85 decibels of white or engine noise. Their taste thresholds did change in this way. Sweet and salty, being harder to taste. Umami, uh, easier to taste. That is so bonkers and specific. 
Doesn't that make you want to know why? Why sound would affect taste? In, in particularly umami, like why that nice. that union? I think no one's got the faintest clue. <laughs> what level? <laughs> ah, okay. But they're pretty sure that this is why people drink so much tomato juice or so many Bloody Marys when when they're in flight. Yep, yep. Tomato juice has got lots of umami, and Worcester sauce is another rich sauce. It's like the most umami-ish thing you could drink. We are such weird animals, man. Oh yes. <laughs> the- <laughs> Okay, before uh, before I uh, hop off, a couple quick solutions here. Yeah, yeah, give me some some advice. So number one, mm-hmm. it's been recommended that you bring along a nasal douche, a small <laughs> little bit of water. I never leave home without it, frankly. <laughs> Just to spray, you know, to keep some moisture up there in your nose, which is going to allow oh. you to smell things better and therefore <sighs> enjoy the food more. Number two is you just bring a little MSG because MSG is very umamious. And just put a little of that on On whatever. Yeah, and it's going to taste better. Okay. I've got another idea. Noise-canceling headphones? Yes. And if you want to take the noise-canceling headphones one step further... Why not pick some music that will enhance the taste of the food you're eating? Charles Spence and his lab, they found that white noise isn't the only sound to impact our perception of flavor. That different sounds and different music can do all sorts of different things. You can't turn water into wine with music. Uh, The taste has to be there to begin with. But what you can do is dial up something in the tasting experience or or suppress less desirable uh, uh, tastes. And so I will leave you with this. Some empirically backed sounds you may want to pair with whatever the tray that's put in front of you. So if you're looking to add some salt... They recommend something rhythmic, kind of harsh, and in a minor key. Uh, so you might want to try something like Supernova at the End of the Universe by The Orb here. If you're looking to bring out the bitterness, it's hard to do better than William Basinski's The Disintegration Loops thanks to its low, brassy drones and occasional crackles. Sour, accentuating music isn't particularly pleasant to listen to. It's high-pitched and dissonant, uh, like composer Niels Oakland's Horizonte. And then, lastly, to bring out the sweetness, you're going to want something melodic, higher-pitched, and probably with a piano somewhere in there, oddly enough. Like, for example, Antonio Romero's Fantasia here. All right, folks. Bon appétit. everyone. We hope you enjoyed your meal. The captain has turned on the seatbelt sign. Please return to your seats and keep your seatbelts fastened. We'll be right back. Stay put. Sit down. Thank you.
Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash radiolab, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash radiolab. Rules and restrictions may apply. Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. The archives at Carnegie Hall hold treasures from our cultural history. In the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk, we use these items as touchstones to explore how the past shaped the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jessica Vosk, and I'll be joined by historians, performers, cultural critics, and others to look back at the iconic venue's legendary and sometimes quirky history. If This Hall Could Talk, from Carnegie Hall and distributed by WQXR. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Lulu. Latif. Radio Lab. And now, producer Rachel Cusick. Okay, so there's this very specific moment when I'm flying. It's after I've scooped out the very last bit of the world's most unsatisfying meal. I've kicked off my shoes. Everyone's like, push their seat back. Who's going to push their seat back? For the first time, all flight, I feel relief. Hmm. And then usually at that exact moment, this little bubble arrives in my stomach. This bubble, it starts out small, but then it feels like it finds other bubbles and it grows and moves inside me. And pretty soon, I feel like a lava lamp. Rachel, tell me you are not doing a whole story about farts. Sorry. Every single time, it's not like I was farting all day and then it just like continues on the airplane. It's like it just kicks on this switch in me that happens once I hit cruising altitude. And I go into this panic mode because I'm like packed in like a sardine with all these freaking strangers around me. (laughs) And I've always thought it was just me. But I have had wind. You've had cabin pressure. I had cabin pressure. (laughs) It is not. (laughs) Turns out somebody uh, passed gas on an American Airlines plane. The airplane fart. Fight broke out over a passenger who allegedly refused to stop passing gas is a global problem. Thousands of feet in the air, the pilot is forced to divert. And everyone had to be removed from the jet. It was that bad. I'm just in a ball of discomfort. (laughs) I'm just in a ball of curiosity. Like, what is happening here? All right. So then how do you answer that question? Where, Where do you go? So we actually have to go down a little bit. Down to ground level. Okay. okay. All right. Land the plane for a second. <laughs> We're going to land it. No one get off. I feel better already. 
We have to go back to this hiking trip okay. from the 1980s. Two men, York Miller. And uh, my friend, Paul Auerbach, who was a class behind me at Duke Medical School. York Miller is the one telling us this story, by the way. Great. Okay. We had planned a five-day backpacking trip. In Colorado. In the San Juan Mountains. So day one, they start hiking. Back in there in some high country. And they go up higher. Above timberline. And then... Probably the very first night. They kind of get into their tent. They zip it up. And... One of them farts. And then the other one does. And all of a sudden, their tent is filled with this symphony. And it's a symphony of farts. Yeah, I'm one of these guys who likes to make as much noise as possible. Uh, oh. <laughs> you thought this was better, Lulu. I thought Lulu. it was safe. Okay. You know, it could be quite unpleasant in that tent. Just my, my hands are, like, clenched against my face right now. This happens again and again. And by the way, Paul and I were, you know, stuck in a tent together in the rain. There's like truly no escape. It's not like you're going to like step outside and fart. Ultimately, they decide to expedite this trip from a five-day trip to a three-day trip, not because of the farts, <laughs> oh, but because, because of the rain. Oh, okay. And they're heading back home. And we started to remark about uh, how much gas we were each passing. Wondering what was causing all of that. Mm -hmm. They considered diet. Granola and then various freeze-dried stuff. And then they thought, like, are we just focusing on it because we're stuck in this small enclosed space? For longer than usual. And then one of them wondered if this had anything to do with... We were up at twelve to 13,000 feet. Altitude and Boyle's Law. Boyle's Law? Uh, the ideal gas equation. Which is, when it comes to gas, any gas. As pressure goes down, mm -hmm. volume goes up. So just imagine walking up a mountain. As you go higher, the pressure goes lower, and the gas in your intestines is expanding. Right, okay. Right. Ballooning outwards until you really have no other option but to let it out. And so, according to Boyle's Law, farts increase as the elevation does. So, York and Paul... We started to compose a letter... To a medical journal. They call this phenomenon HAFE. High-altitude flatus expulsion. And they wanted it to have a very official name. To fit in with the general uh, high-altitude literature. They submit it. And let's just say people resonate with the topic. I'm sure that this HAFE paper is the, is the most cited thing I've ever published. I'm kind of a big fish in a small pond in that farting area. <laughs> it's a really bubbly pond. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Do you think that the same... And so I asked York, is this what's happening on airplanes also? Well, it may be. I mean... Airplanes, airplanes are usually pressurized to about 8,000 feet, meaning they're pumping air into the cabin at a level that's not sea level, but a level that is basically the height of a mountain. Oh, so they're pumping in thinner air. Mm. Yes, they pump in thinner air. So, but why would they do? Why wouldn't they just pressurize to land level and not fart mountain level? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because if there's too much pressure inside this airplane, the airplane could burst. Okay, fair, 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 fair. Okay, good call. Yeah, no, good no, call, no big deal. Good call. No big deal. <laughs> okay, I'm down with that decision. Yeah, great. And the, and the airplanes, they could pressurize it to six thousand feet instead of eight thousand feet. Hmm. 
they've done it before in certain airplanes, but those airplanes are more expensive. So does that mean there are certain airlines that are like, you know what? We do it upright. You got sea level pressure in here. And others are like, yeah, we're skimping. It's mountain pressure. There's going to be more farts. Yeah. Theoretically, you could assume that those more expensive airplanes have less of an effect on the body and therefore have fewer farts on them. Oh, I hate it. And 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 again, the thing I'm actually mad at is money. It's like there it is lurking in all yeah. these stories. Yeah. It's like we set it up at the beginning as this civilization in the sky. And, you know, here are three moments that we've found where, you know, we could have prioritized human dignity and comfort, but no, <laughs> we chose not to. Yeah. Yes, yes. It is like everywhere you look in this little metal tube, you find capitalism over humanity. Yes. All right, well, should we get off this plane? Let's do it. Hello, everyone. We're beginning our final descent. Wait, 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 wait. Before we go, I just have one last little tidbit that I think could help us clear the air. Let it rip. Okay, so I talked to this pilot named Lou. Lou Boyer, I'm a 747 captain. And Lou helped me realize we are not the only civilization flying around up in the clouds. I've flown just about every animal you can think of over the years. And you two buckle up and put your seats in the upright position for what I'm about to tell you next. Okay, all right. In his 30 plus years of flying, Lou has flown bears. Uh, Horses all the time. Small containers of reptiles. You know, we get snakes. Samuel L. Jackson was not lying. There's actually snakes on planes. Yeah. <laughs> and we flew 562 llamas when we took off. At least it was 562 llamas. And when we landed, it was 564 because we had two live births while uh, we were en route. Wow. Lou has flown fish and cows and elephants. I've flown whales. I've flown tigers. I've flown everything. You've flown whales? I don't know. They need a whale, I guess, in Japan for a... Uh, Aquarium, and they don't have one. I guess they they fly one in. You know, I mean, it's uh, he's flying whales, folks. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm picturing like Noah's Ark. <laughs> uh, that's a pretty good imagination. There, they just don't roam freely on the main deck. Do they have like big, big, giant aquarium pools that you just in, like one at a time you plop a whale onto the to the plane? Yeah, or? sort of. It's it's its own little capsule, if you will. Well, not little, but they have their own compartments, so they can't really move around much. There's obviously a veterinarian there that, you know, they're sedated and everything else. Are these planes specifically just animals? Are these, like, in the cargo on a passenger plane? So it's a mix. Oftentimes these animals are just plopped on a cargo plane. But I did read about these two sloths that needed to get transported to a zoo and they just blocked out seats for the sloth and the handlers at the front of the plane and they're just sitting. Were they given drinks? Apparently they refused the peanuts. I don't know if that was like a writerly line or if they actually didn't want peanuts. (laughs) And their arms are so long, you just picture their hands like draped over the armrest. And then one of them leans back and like reclines their seat and the other. So slowly, like, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a Disney movie. But hearing about these animals that are flying in the sky, it reminds me of this absolute magic that happens on an airplane. Like 200 years ago, a flying human probably sounded about as crazy as a flying whale. And now every single day, hundreds of thousands of us are up in the sky 
in our own little tanks and we're breathing out of thin air and being taken care of by our flight attendant handlers and going to the bathroom and watching Bridget Jones's diary in a place we never were meant to. And even I get tired of that amazingness. And I focus instead on the small amount of legroom and the sad little meals and the farts in the air. But I, I think next time I fly, I'm just going to try to remember that I'm a flying whale. Is that the end? Do we make it to the end? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not even close. I'm, I, I have so many more questions here. Yeah. Right? Imagine like a farting whale. No. Can we <laughs> just, wait, are we done yet? But maybe there are blowholes sort of take care of all of that. Yeah, farting above. Although is it different issues because there's a blowhole about like a lung. Yeah, I wonder. That's a great question. Okay, we're here. Thank goodness. Okay, so this episode was reported and produced by Matt Kilty, Simon Adler, and Rachel Cusick with production help from Sindhun Yanasambandan and mixing help from Ariane Wack. It was edited by Pat Walters, and our flight attendant was none other than Mr. David Gable. Bravo, bravo. Special thanks to Natalie Compton, Julia Langoria, Mike Arnott, and everyone at Gate Gourmet. If you want to learn more about the history of airplane food, check out Richard Foss's Food in the Air and Space, the surprising history of food and drink in the skies. Thank you. Uh, I hope you have safe travels, whether you are a farting human or a farting whale. (laughs) One thing I wanted to recommend during this, this travel time, which can also be emotionally complicated... Our colleagues over at Death, Sex, and Money have a truly awesome series about estrangement that is out right now. Um, It talks about family estrangement. It talks about people who are thinking about estranging themselves, people who have been estranged against their will. Um, It looks at it from all kinds of angles, and I personally have listened to every single one, found it very powerful. You can check that out over at Death, Sex, and Money, and just click on the episodes that have estrangement. Bye-bye. Radio Lab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, Akedi Foster Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nyanasambandan, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sarah Kari, Anna Rasquet Paz, Sarah Sandback, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Andrew Vinales. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton. Hi, this is Finn calling from Stores, Connecticut. Leadership support for Radiolab science programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Radiolab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.